Welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. This week's story features a young pastor who preyed upon the young lives he was meant to look after and mentor. It features lies, deception, and a blind eye from leadership, ending with the death of 17-year-old Stephanie Sanchez. Being in a role of power and responsibility is a privilege some just shouldn't have. I do not have any San Antonio true crimes this week. Not that there weren't crimes. I just really dived into the story and it took me a little longer to put it together, but I wanted to make sure I did it right for you all. Shout out to the San Antonio Express News for the archives that helped me put this story together. We have two weeks left to the season finale and then it's a break for the holidays. Stick with us. It'll be good. Alright, I think we're good. Here we go, episode 13. Warning, this story depicts accounts of violence, sexual assault, and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. What was supposed to be just another regular day for a family turned into the worst day of their lives. It was December the 12th, 2005. A father comes home to discover his daughter lying in a pool of blood at around 4.30 p.m. at the family's home in the 400 block of Precious Drive on the city's inner west side. Juan Vargas had just picked up his kids from school when he found his 17-year-old daughter, Stephanie Sanchez, with multiple stab wounds and dying. She was three months pregnant. In a seven-minute 911 call made by Stephanie's brother Jonathan, he and a neighbor talked to emergency personnel on the phone while his dad can be heard shrieking in panic and rage in the background as he tries to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation on his daughter. She never regained consciousness. It's not clear whether emergency medical services or the San Antonio police showed up first but the paramedics established that Stephanie had been stabbed repeatedly in the neck and back, and when police arrived, they found Juan screaming, Adrian killed her. With that to start with, the police started questioning neighbors. Immediately, they were told of a man matching the description who killed Stephanie, fleeing the scene in a black Trans Am. The same day, two San Antonio police officers and Detective Elizabeth Greiner went to Adrian Estrada's family apartment at around 8 p.m., Adrian was 22 years old. While they were in the apartment, Adrian Estrada received a call from his supervisor, Pastor Roy, from the church where he worked as a youth pastor who advised Estrada to get a lawyer. Estrada's mother and sister also suggested that he should get a lawyer. Detective Grainer told the family that they just wanted to speak with Estrada and offered him a ride to the police station. The detectives left the apartment and soon after Estrada followed them out. He then expressed uncertainty about whether he should follow Pastor Roy's advice about getting a lawyer. Detective Griner informed Estrada that getting a lawyer was his choice, 
and she also explained that he was not under arrest and that he did not have to talk to them. Estrada responded that he had nothing to hide and that he wanted to give a statement to the police that night. He then decided to ride with the detectives to the police station in an unmarked police vehicle. When they got into the car, Estrada received a phone call in his cell from Pastor Roy, who asked him to give the phone to Detective Greiner. The detective took the phone, stepped out of the car, and closed the door. Pastor Roy attempted to invoke Estrada's rights to counsel during this phone call. Detective Griner told Pastor Roy that because he was not a lawyer, he could not invoke Estrada's rights, and she ended the call. We went over this in episode 3. Someone else can't invoke your rights for you unless it's a parent or a guardian. The police brought Adrian Estrada into the police station through the back, or snuck him in as the defense would say later. The state claimed that Estrada was brought in the back to avoid contact with the victim's family and the media. They placed him in room 4, a small interrogation room, where a camera, apparently hidden, was already recording. Although he had been told on the way to the police station that he would be free to leave, and that the police would take him home if he wished, Estrada was not told he was free to move around the police station. Instead, officers brought him beverages and escorted him to the bathroom. This was done, apparently, to avoid Estrada having contact with Stephanie's family, who was at the police station. Detective Griner began the interrogation. Estrada stated that he had been romantically involved with Stephanie Sanchez, a member of the youth group he led as a youth minister. Their relationship had problems, and Estrada eventually started seeing a different member of the group, another girl whose name I will not use due to the fact that she was underage at the time. We'll just call her the girlfriend in reference to her. Estrada later learned that Stephanie Sanchez was pregnant and that he was likely the father. He did not initially make any statements confessing to harming her. In fact, Estrada denied any involvement in the murders during approximately three hours of questioning by Detective Griner. At about this time, Griner left the interview room and Estrada's 16-year-old girlfriend, who had come to the police station, was allowed to speak with him. Estrada and the girlfriend had an emotional encounter when she confronted him with the information provided her by the police that Estrada told them he got Stephanie pregnant and murdered her. Estrada told the girlfriend that he did not tell the police that and that they lied to her. She then accused him of lying to her and killing Stephanie. Estrada tearfully continued to deny any involvement in the murders and then the girlfriend left the interview room. A detective walker came into the interview room sitting between Estrada, who was seated in the corner, and the door. Detective Walker then gestured with his fingers and his hands, smacked them on the table for emphasis, and raised his voice frequently as he launched a series of allegations and began to question Estrada. Estrada continued to deny any involvement in the murders, but admitted that he had the sexual relationship with Stephanie. Detective Walker accused Estrada of lying about his involvement with Stephanie's murder, and also informed Estrada that eyewitnesses identified him and his car, that he was the investigation's prime suspect and central figure in this murder investigation. He told him the police possessed enough evidence to charge him already and would do so in probable cause statement, that he was a cold-blooded killer and that he would be going to prison for a long time where he would have a boyfriend. Detective Walker then told Estrada that he was free to leave and Estrada acknowledged that he was there voluntarily and did not have to listen to Detective Walker's accusations. Estrada told Walker that he did not want to continue talking and that he wanted the police to give him a ride home. But once Detective Walker began to pressure him, Estrada said, I'm ready to leave and I'm going to leave right now. 
Detective Walker responded by asking, Do you want to talk to Detective Griner before you leave or something? Estrada responded, No. He then requested a ride home, as he had been promised. Detective Griner then returned to the room because she was aware Estrada was attempting to end the interrogation. Detective Walker explicitly told Detective Griner, Yeah, he's wanting to go home. And Detective Griner responded, Oh, okay. I was coming in to tell him what the girlfriend had to tell me. And Detective Walker replied, well, be careful, he's already killed one woman today. Estrada repeated his request to go home. In response, Detective Griner asked, you don't want to hear what she has to say? Estrada finally relented and the interrogation continued. Estrada told Detective Griner that she could tell him what the girlfriend had said and then he would leave. After Detective Walker left the room, Detective Griner told Estrada that the girlfriend told her that she and Estrada had a sexual relationship. She told me some things. I think she was quite upset, Detective Walker said. She shared with me that you guys had a sexual relationship. After talking to Estrada for a few minutes about his relationship with the girlfriend, Detective Griner asked Estrada if he wanted to talk about Stephanie Sanchez. I mean, she was an adult, said the detective trying to ease him into conversation. This is an awful lot, okay? I'm concerned, and my concern is for you to want to continue to talk to me. That's great, okay? I'll share my concern with you. With everything they told me, it's your choice. Do you want to leave, or do you want to keep talking? It's your choice. Five more minutes, then I'll go, Estrada responded. She played him perfectly. Estrada sobbed, hiding his face in his hands as Detective Elizabeth Griner leaned in close placing her hand on his upper arm and gently caressing him. You've got to tell me, she said. Less than five minutes later, the tearful Estrada confessed that he went to Stephanie Sanchez's house because he wanted to talk with her, and they had talked at the kitchen table. He told her that he was tired of everything and that he did not love her. She did not want to accept this and started getting out of control, according to him. He says he tried to leave, but she tried to block him, slapping him in the face. Distraught over their breakup and not wanting him to leave, he said she tried to stab him with a large knife from her kitchen. Estrada said he then choked her as she continued to scream and curse and said she wanted to kill him. She dropped the knife and he stabbed her repeatedly with it. Estrada stated that he used the knife in which Stephanie tried to cut him, which came from her kitchen where she was cooking. Estrada described choking Sanchez to get her to drop the knife and then taking the knife and stabbing her when he realized that choking her was not killing her. And I was just squeezing her neck like that, he said. And she wasn't, she wasn't dying. And so I got the knife and I don't know how many times I did it, but I did it. In fact, he would end up stabbing her 13 times. Estrada also told Detective Griner where the discarded knife and his shoes were and drew her a mat. He said he discarded the knife on the street. The crime scene detectives would verify that the knives were missing from the kitchen knife set. He stated, I couldn't take it anymore. She wanted me. She was going to keep ruining my life. I didn't go over there intending to do that, he said while crying. There was no evidence that Estrada came armed to Stephanie's home. He stated nothing about the fetus and no desire to harm it. During the interrogation, Estrada cried, said he regretted his acts which were not justifiable, stating it was a mistake I made that I regret so bad. 
when Estrada asked what would happen next. Detective Griner told him that they would take him home, but that a warrant would be issued for his arrest. The entire interrogation lasted approximately five hours. Having obtained this inculpatory statement and abundant amount of other evidence, the police said that they would take Estrada home after taking him to his sister's house to retrieve the shirt he wore during the murders. The police weren't worried. They retired to a diner to await a warrant. Soon after, Detective Mussey tried to contact Estrada hours after the homicide. Estrada returned a call. During the interrogation, the police repeatedly praised Estrada for being forthcoming and cooperative. They were stating things like, you're cooperating, you've told me everything, you know, and you can keep talking and you've cooperated. We're more than willing to cooperate with you, okay? They were praising him for rolling over on himself. Estrada was arrested about three hours after being dropped off pursuant to an arrest warrant. He gave a brief second videotape DVD statement after being informed of his Miranda rights, which he indicated that he understood. The next day, the headline read, Youth Pastor Held in Pregnant Teen's Death. The former youth minister was charged with capital murder after his pregnant teenage girlfriend was fatally stabbed in her west side home. Adrian Estrada was taken into custody at his home at about 5 a.m. The death of 17-year-old Stephanie Sanchez revealed a relationship that had remained a secret from many parishioners at El Sendero Assembly of God Church, where Estrada was a youth minister and where the victim and her family frequently attended services. The violent incident sent a shock through the community of people that knew Estrada and Stephanie. They described Estrada as a quiet, devoted church leader and Stephanie as a lovable, easygoing daughter. We just don't know why, Stephanie's mother Mary Vargas said as she stood on the porch of her home where her daughter was killed, a location known more for its weekly Bible gatherings than for violence. We had no signs this was coming. This was someone that was supposed to be becoming a part of the family, said Mike Springer, an acquaintance and bishop at Ingram Hills Church of God, where Stephanie's younger brother attends school. It's just incomprehensible that someone would do something like this. Stephanie Sanchez was a senior at El Sendero Christian Academy next to the church. She had known Estrada for four years, according to her mother, Mary. Her parents knew about the relationship, but the couple tried to keep the relationship hidden from others at the church, and it was unclear whether parishioners knew about it or her pregnancy. Stephanie's parents confirmed that she was three months pregnant, and Estrada was the father of the child. Estrada gave the church notice that he was resigning as a youth minister on October the 15, 2005, so he could focus on school, but he agreed to remain in the position until a replacement was found, according to El Sendero Pastor Raul Garcia. Estrada remained at the Bear County Jail in lieu of posting a $500,000 bond. Crying and wrapped in a blanket on her front porch Tuesday, Mary said she only wished Estrada had ended his relationship with her daughter rather than end her life. We wish he would have just left her alone if he didn't want to be with her, she said. She didn't need him. The grand jury wouldn't send an indictment of Adrian Estrada until March of 2006, and his trial wouldn't commence until the end of January 2007. The state introduced Adrian Estrada's confession into evidence 
much to the objection of the defense. Defense lawyer Susan Kramer argued that once Estrada said that he was done talking, the police should have stopped discussing the case with Estrada. But they didn't, and he didn't, even as they read him his rights once again in the hours after Stephanie's death. However, 226th District Court Judge Sid Harrell allowed them. Other evidence included, over defense objection, was a 7-minute 911 call made by Stephanie's family upon discovering her body. Prosecutor Scott Simpson told the jurors in his opening statement that Estrada held Bible studies and ministered to Sanchez in his role as a youth pastor at El Sendero Assembly of God Church. And in December 2004, when she was 16 years old and he was 21, he took her to abort her first pregnancy. By the time she was killed a year later, Simpson said, Estrada was interested in another young girl. Rather than somebody who could be trusted with her children, he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. The state is charging Estrada with capital murder because both Sanchez and the baby she was carrying died. Defense lawyer Susan Kramer told jurors that the state's burden is proving Estrada intended to kill both Sanchez and the fetus. We do not believe the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt he intended to kill both, she told jurors. Estrada was dating the teenager with her mother's approval, as Mary Vargas testified. I did approve of it, Mary said. I never thought he would take advantage of my daughter. Never. When Mary learned of the abortion, she chastised her daughter. I told her that it was the worst thing she could do, and she knew it, she said. But she let the relationship continue. I believed him when he told me that it would never happen again, she said. When Stephanie became pregnant again, Mary said she thought Estrada would marry her daughter. And then Stephanie miscarried. The third time Stephanie became pregnant, Estrada met with her parents. He said in the meeting with Stephanie's father, Juan Vargas had gone to the church pastors and told them everything the mother testified. Then she said Estrada made them a deal. In order to help with the baby, Estrada needed to keep his Trans Am and his second job as a telemarketer, she said. To do that, he needed to stay with the church for a few weeks longer. He wanted my husband to go back to the pastor and tell the pastor that everything was a lie. She said her husband did so and that Estrada was able to keep his job until the end of the year. At trial, one of the family members testified essentially to the same facts, including the administration of CPR and attempts to give her aid. A neighbor testified that she saw a green Camaro in the driveway on the day of the 17-year-old neighbor's death. She identified a photograph of a black car belonging to Adrian Estrada as the car she saw that day. She may have had the name of the car wrong, but she did pick out the right car in a lineup. Another neighbor testified that she saw a black Trans Am backed into the driveway of the deceased young woman that day. She identified Adrian Estrada as the driver and said she had seen him about 15 other times with her, often on Tuesday nights when she was in Bible study at the girl's home. He was with a girl who sat in the passenger side of the car who had long hair. It might have been the new girlfriend with him, which is just crazy. I never saw anywhere in there where they said that anybody else was with them. And if he did kill her and get back in the car with this girl, I mean, that doesn't make her necessarily an accomplice, but I mean, there's no way she didn't know something had happened if she was there that day, which again, I found no evidence or any statements 
other than this in this entire case. The state introduced evidence of Estrada's cell phone records showing he was in the general vicinity of Stephanie's home that day. There was a video recording of Estrada purchasing a shirt at Walmart that day after the murder. And despite being drawn a map of where he discarded the items, officers could never find the shoes or the knife that he discarded on the city street many hours earlier that day. Stephanie's physician testified that she had the abortion in 2004 and the miscarriage in 05. Her third pregnancy appeared to be developing normally and the non-viable fetus was approximately 13 weeks old on December the 12th. DNA evidence established that it was 92,000 times more likely that Estrada was the father rather than a person selected at random. While Stephanie's mom approved of the relationship, she said that he was never violent or disrespectful. She knew about the abortions and she knew that Estrada was the one to drive her to the procedure. She believed they broke up after the miscarriage, but they were still talking. After a while, the two spent a day together, and Stephanie became pregnant again some weeks later. Mary Vargas also testified to victim. Mary Vargas also testified to victim impact evidence, including Stephanie's aspirations to work as a missionary after graduation. Mary read the following from Stephanie's journal: "Where to start? Oh, woe me and Adrian." Now we've been broken up for two months. At first it was really hard to deal with. I thought I was going to go crazy and kill myself, but I dealt with it each day by myself, just crying and basically hating myself. Me and Adrian would talk twice a week, so that helped me get through it a lot. I was so angry with him. Finally sit down and asked me if we could just be friends. So of me being as stupid as I am, I said of course. But when he asked me if I could meet him at his office the next day so that we could hang and just talk. So I told him yes, and the next day I met him and we had sex. He hasn't talked to me since. The prosecution said, before you go on to the second entry in the journal, what was the date on the part of that journal's entry? Mary said, September 25th, 2005. The state says, okay, now go ahead and read the second entry. What's the date on that entry? Mary says, December 3rd, 2005, just nine days before the murder. Okay, so looking back on the last thing I wrote in here, I found out that I was pregnant. I am two months and a couple weeks. Adrian doesn't want to have anything to do with me. He has told me he hates me through this whole experience. I found out this world is filled with bitches and assholes. Can you talk a little bit about what the impact of her death has been on your family? She answered, they miss her. Each and every one of them miss her. Each and every one of them had a relationship with her, always coming to her for their, for her opinion on a lot of things. She was asked then, has her death impacted the way that your family is able to interact or get along with one another? And she answered, I've noticed that the kids are very quick to jump at each other. The girlfriend testified that Estrada told her about two weeks before the murders that he wished he could kill Stephanie. The evidence also shows that Estrada committed indecency with a child with another girl in his youth group when she was 15 years old. Estrada threatened to ruin another former member of the youth group after she threatened to reveal the relationship with the girlfriend. Stephanie's father, Juan Vargas, testified. The prosecution asked him, Mr. Vargas, 
Have there been any specific things that have changed to your family since Stephanie's death? Juan answered, yes, everything. I can't hold a job. My family can't go out. They go to school, you know, they're angry. Me and my wife, we don't. It destroyed what we got. I got another daughter and two boys, but it's a big, like it's a big part, you know? And it's just rough on them. How? I can't. I don't. I don't want them to go to the movies. I don't. I can't be with them all the time, right? I don't. How am I going to be there if they are there? And this is the church that I had faith and trusted in. And then for them to do this. And then. And now for me to let my family go out into the world is twice as hard, right? Or I don't want them to do anything. I want them with me all the time. All the time. I don't trust nobody. I don't trust nothing. That's... And you worry about them. You ask me how it affects me. I walked in the house. When I walked in the house, my kids were with me. I went to pick them up from school. Everybody just how it affects me or how it affects my wife. My kids, they have to grow up. They have their whole lives ahead of them. Forget about me, about my wife. What about my kids? What? They saw their sister like that. I think they're going to finish school and go to college. What are they going to turn to? Are they going to turn into alcoholics? They are pissed off. They are mad. If I am pissed off, can you imagine with them? How can something like that happen? I mean, how can... How can he do something like this to his... His testimony ended there. Estrada's defense moved for a directed verdict on the charge of murder of the fetus because the state presented no evidence that he knowingly or intentionally caused the death of the fetus rather than recklessly or negligently. The state responded by relying solely on the theory of transferred intent. Example, his intent to kill Stephanie sufficed for both counts of murder. Although the court would later deny the state's request for a transferred intent instruction, it overruled the defense motion for a directed verdict. During the state's summation, they speculated that the killing was spurred by a disagreement over whether Stephanie would get an abortion. They argued that Estrada knowingly killed the baby because he already got rid of one baby when he took her down there for an abortion. They speculated the stab wounds in the neck were for the mom and the second set were for the baby. The following is from the state's argument. So let's talk about the crux of this case. They are saying that he did not knowingly kill the baby. Actually, they are not saying that, are they? They keep saying intent. It's his intent. His intent. Intent. They skipped over the whole mental state, didn't they? They say they talk about intentionally or reckless disregard. They don't want to talk about knowingly, but that's in the charge. We have to prove either intentionally or knowingly. He knew she was pregnant. It might be different. It's certainly a different case if it's unclear as to whether the defendant knew she was pregnant. It's certainly a different case if it's unclear as to whether the defendant knew she was pregnant. If it's a stranger killing somebody who is pregnant, it's not like she was showing, okay? That's a different case. But that's not this case. Notice, he knew she was pregnant. Knew, knowingly, know what happens. You all know what no means when you know something. Dr. Becerro and Dr. Molina said the baby can't live without mom. 
And once again, the defense said, well, why are they bringing that? Well, because we have to prove that the baby was, had not, was not like a dead fetus in her womb, right? And we proved that to you by the growth. You know the baby was still alive and doing well. It's not to inflame you. It's to let you know the facts. Aren't you entitled to hear the facts as a jury? To know what happened? He knew the baby would die, folks. He knew it. They asserted that the victim's home was filled with dreams and hopes of a 17-year-old mother-to-be and argued that Estrada had failed to state that he did not intend to kill the fetus. It concluded by contending the jury would commit a crime by not returning a verdict of capital murder. Prosecutor Kirsten Melton said, The man was picking out clothes while his girlfriend and his child bled to death on the kitchen floor during closing arguments. Melton said that on the day of the incident, Estrada choked Stephanie, turned her over because he couldn't stomach looking at her, stabbed her 13 times, and left her to die knowing the unborn child would also perish. Prosecutor Simpson showed jurors photos of Sanchez's back, pointing to five stab wounds in her neck and head, and said those were intended by Estrada to kill her. The prosecutor then turned a photo showing eight stab wounds and cuts to Sanchez's back torso, knelt in front of the jury, and offered his imitation of Estrada, bringing his arm above his head and stabbing at the air with a clenched fist. Estrada's attorney, Susan Kramer, said Estrada went to Sanchez's home and the couple fought. We will not argue that the killing was in self-defense, Kramer told jurors. I think it will insult your intelligence. I think it's obvious whatever happened was emotions gone awry. The defense rested without presenting witnesses. Kramer said that the state must prove Estrada meant to kill Stephanie's fetus too. If jurors believe he didn't mean to kill the fetus, they could convict him of murder instead of capital murder. But the jury took a little more than an hour to convict Adrian Estrada, now 24 years old, of capital murder in the December 2005 choking and stabbing death of Stephanie Sanchez. Close relatives of the defendant and the victim were overwhelmed by emotion and who were consoled by their respective supporters. While neither the parents of Estrada nor Sanchez would speak with the porters afterwards, Trino Rodriguez, one of Stephanie's uncles, revealed thoughts he restrained in court. He said he saw no remorse from Estrada. I felt like jumping over and beating the shit out of him, Rodriguez said. He doesn't have no soul. He doesn't have no feelings. Nothing at all. Look what he's done and nothing. He just stayed with his head down all the time. Asked by reporters what punishment he desired, Rodriguez said, death. If it was up to me, get a rope and hang him outside. The punishment phase of his trial was set to begin the next day. The punishment phase of his trial was set to begin the next day. The state was seeking the death penalty, and the defense wanted to show that Estrada didn't intend to kill Stephanie, and he'd been remorseful of his actions. As to the character of Estrada, there wouldn't be much to argue after the testimony of three girls who had interactions or relationship with Estrada. Also attempting to prove future dangerousness, the state relied solely on the capital conviction and on Estrada's sexual misconduct, while a youth minister with two young women from El Sendero Church. A young female who we will not name due to being underage, 
testified that Estrada subjected her to unwanted sexual touching and fondling during separate incidences in November of 2004 and April of 2005, but not intercourse. He was 21 and she was 15. She told jurors the first time Estrada touched her was at the church. In the bathroom, he told her to remove her top and he photographed her with his camera phone. While they were in there, the girl's mother called, wondering where she was. Estrada took the phone, the girl said, and told her mother that she was with him because there was something she wanted to talk to him about. The mother was okay with that, she said. On another night, he was taking her home from a meeting, but instead of driving her home, Estrada used his church finance Trans Am to drive the 15-year-old girl to a darkened parking lot at a nearby apartment complex. There, he tilted his seat back and told her to take her shirt off. He then fondled her. The girl who was 15 when she, the girl who was 15 when she was involved with Estrada was barely audible as she answered questions from Assistant District Attorney Kirsten Melton. Estrada eventually began to ignore her. She said. Toward the end, there was drama and stuff. Rumors were going around. The girl said she didn't tell anybody about what happened. I was scared, she said. Asked why? She said I was just scared. She finally approached her coach after she saw on television that Estrada had been arrested in Stephanie's murder. The rumors had caused friction between the girl and Stephanie, who was her friend. They also caused Stephanie to lash out at another girl Estrada was seeing, the girlfriend. The girlfriend was mystified by Sanchez's hostility, she told jurors. And Estrada told her that Stephanie was obsessed with him. The girlfriend, 16 at the time, testified that Estrada took her to motel rooms. At the time, Estrada lived with his mother. The girlfriend said he also took her to get birth control pills. She did not want to believe Estrada was guilty and wrote him in jail for months after his arrest. And yet another young woman who took the stand had counted herself a friend of Stephanie's and had promised to keep the 16-year-old relationship a secret, but when she heard the rumors of Stephanie's pregnancy, she decided to tell church officials. Defense lawyer Susan Kramer put on several character witnesses, including Bear County jail employees and former city councilman Weir Labitt. The detention officers testified that Estrada had been a well-behaved inmate who had employed Estrada's mother as a housekeeper for 26 years, called him a nice, attractive, clean-cut, well-behaved young man, who even called him from jail to send condolences when Labitt lost a family member. When the court broke so the jurors could deliberate, Juan Vargas was quoted, They all look like parents to me. I'm sure they can understand. He's in a cage. I feel like I'm in a cage, he added. In 2003, legislation was passed that amended the definition of the word individual under the law to include unborn child at every state of gestation from fertilization until birth. During its punishment phase deliberations, the jury sent out two notes at separate times. The first note asked what would happen if the jury could not come to a decision on the future dangerousness special issue. The second note asked based on the testimony of Fitzgerald and Merillat, is there a possibility that the defendant would be eligible for a less restrictive status after 10 years or some other period of time? This would come up later. The trial court responded to both of these notes by responding, you have the law and the evidence, please continue your deliberations. In other words, figure it out.
Jurors would sentence Adrian Estrada to die in what was believed to be the first death penalty handed down under Texas's 2003 fetal protection law. The jury took about three hours to answer two questions that meant death by lethal injection for the former youth pastor. Is he a continuing threat to society? Are there mitigating circumstances in his character, background, and moral culpability to give him a life sentence instead? The jury didn't think so. After the jury of eight women and four men reached the decision, 226th District Judge Sid Harrell pronounced the sentence. Reaction to the verdict in the packed courtroom was a muted intake of breath. Estrada appeared emotionless, as he had throughout the often emotional testimony. The same jury convicted Estrada, who was described as the bad guy that you don't suspect is the one you can't protect your loved ones from by assistant DA Scott Simpson. Others have been tried and convicted under the 2003 Prenatal Protection Act, which criminalizes injury or death to an embryo or fetus as a result of violence. But Estrada's death sentence may be the first in Texas for such a crime. This is significant for the state, Bear County DA Susan Reed said outside the courtroom. Estrada faced either life in prison without parole or death in the trial which Reed said was also the first capital case tried in Bear County since the law was changed to forbid parole for those convicted of capital crimes. Reed said she had been nervous about the case's outcome. The no parole law, she said, was passed in part to reassure jurors they do not need to met out the death penalty to ensure a convict never gets free. That makes getting a death sentence more of a challenge, she said. Plus, she said, there was some uncertainty in how jurors would react to the designation of the unborn baby as a victim. By that definition, Estrada took two lives, making it a capital crime. They saw it the way we saw it, she said. This man was hypocritical to the nth degree and dangerous. Prosecutors had to argue under the new law that Estrada would be a continuing threat even to prison society and those who work within it. Assistant DA Krista Melton said he would be a threat because he has no conscience. Adrian Estrada takes what he wants, when he wants it, regardless of who it hurts. Defense lawyer Susan Kramer told the jury that Sanchez's murder was unforgivable, but that Adrian Estrada is not the worst of the worst. We do not believe he is the poster child for what the death penalty was created for, she said. Sanchez's family left the courtroom with little to say except for the comment about Jonathan Vargas, Sanchez's brother. We're happy, he said, as he helped his mother edge into the courthouse elevator and away from the cameras and lights. In deciding their verdict, jurors found that Estrada is a continuing threat to society and that there was no mitigating factors to spare him the death penalty. A lawsuit filed on February 25, 2009 accused a former youth minister of the Northwest Side Church El Sendero Assembly of God of sexually abusing a youth and the senior pastor of failing to take appropriate action to prevent it. Stephanie's parents sued El Sendero and its pastor back in 2007, claiming that they should shoulder responsibility for what happened to their daughter because the pastor was informed of the relationship between Estrada and Stephanie and did nothing about it. Church pastor Raul Garcia, in an interview, denied the allegations and claimed Estrada had resigned from the church before the killing took place. 
He was not a youth pastor when the incident happened, Garcia said. One bad apple can hurt the church. We're sorry about what happened, but we're not involved. One of Stephanie's parents privately settled a wrongful death suit against the church. Another victim accused Estrada in a lawsuit of molesting her. That suit was also privately settled. This third youth now claims that Garcia ignored obvious warning signs that should have prompted to investigate Estrada more thoroughly and remove him before he had a chance to molest her, the suit says. Sadly, Pastor Garcia ignored a wolf preying on his flock, the suit says. In a brief phone interview by the San Antonio Express News, Pastor Garcia denied knowing the youth or her accusation contained in the suit, citing the size of his roughly 700-member congregation. This is the first time I've heard about it, he said. Pastor Garcia said he personally spoke to Stephanie Sanchez before her death and to the girl who settled her lawsuit with the church, asking the both of them if they had sex with Estrada. Both girls and Estrada denied it to him, he said. Pastor Garcia said he had no reason to look further into Estrada's action before he killed Stephanie. He came to the church highly recommended and with no arrests on his record, he said. What else can I do? stating, if I would have known, it would never have happened. We're strict, or more strict with the single guys, he added. There's not one witness who can come and say that they told me about it. On June 16, 2010, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals threw out the death sentence of Adrian Estrada. The state's highest criminal court said jurors who decided Estrada should die for killing 17-year-old Stephanie Sanchez and her unborn child had incorrect information from a prosecution witness regarding prison restrictions on capital murder convicts who were given life without parole rather than a death sentence. A jury in Bear County would now have those choices after convicting Estrada of capital murder. The court upheld his conviction, but Estrada, now 26 years old, would return to Bear County for a new punishment trial. Estrada's lawyers raised 44 challenge to his 2007 conviction and sentence. The appeals court denied all but one on punishment regarding inmate classification in prison. Prosecutors acknowledged legal briefs to the appeals court that in the interest of justice, Estrada was entitled to new punishment hearing. Estrada contended testimony from AP Merillette who investigates prison crimes for the state and has testified for prosecutors at death penalty trials was incorrect when he said convict sentenced to life without parole after 10 years could become eligible for the lowest classification level within the prison system, meaning he'd be eligible for less restriction on things like housing, jobs, commissary, and recreation time. The issue was raised by jurors in a note sent to the judge during deliberations. The appeals court said that while both prosecutors and Estrada's lawyers seemed to agree the incorrect testimony was not intentional, Estrada's attorneys believe the testimony violated their client's constitutional rights and could have influenced the jury's punishment decision. There is a fair probability that Estrada's death sentence was based on Merillat's incorrect testimony as evidenced by the juror's notes, the appeals court said. We believe that the Supreme Court would find this to be constitutionally intolerable. Mary Vargas, Stephanie's mom, said their family wasn't happy Estrada would be taken off death row, but they understood the decision. We do believe it was an honest mistake and would rather they take care of it now than later on. We're just going to leave it in God's hands and see what happens.
On April 21, 2011, Adrian Estrada had his sentence changed to life in prison in exchange for prosecutors no longer seeking the death penalty. Adrian Estrada, now 27 years old, agreed to forego all rights to appeal the case. Defense lawyer Brian Stoll, a North Carolina-based staff attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union's Capital Punishment Project, appeared to struggle with emotion Thursday as he read aloud a letter his client had written to the victim's family. I understand my actions have caused many people tremendous amounts of pain, Estrada wrote. I regret many things I did, particularly the way I treated Stephanie. Estrada was too nervous to read the letter himself, Stoll said. Sanchez's family dismissed Estrada's words as hollow. Mary Vargas said she hoped she wouldn't have to see Estrada again until he was strapped to the gurney in the execution chamber. She's disappointed the district attorney's office allowed a compromise that won't give her that closure, she said. You just left my daughter there to die. I hate you so much, she yelled at Estrada during the emotional victim impact statement. You should have never, never, never gotten another chance. Prosecutors also wanted the death penalty, said first Assistant District Attorney Cliff Herberg. But given the change in circumstances, it didn't seem likely a new jury would have given it to Estrada, he said. Mary's pain speaks to a mother's bond and love for her child. She wanted her baby to have what she had, the chance to be a mother. What Adrian Estrada stole from their family will never be replaced. From what I can tell, it looks like it took its toll on everyone in the family. Is the church to blame? They have a duty to the congregation to make sure something like that isn't happening. But I don't know all the facts to tell you who knew what and when. Adrian Estrada was grooming his victims for years. He was a sexual predator who was given authority over vulnerable young girls. Everyone keeps saying there were no signs or they didn't know what was happening, but someone did. As we finish our story, we remember Stephanie Sanchez and her baby. Stephanie Ann Sanchez was 17 years old when she was taken from this earth. She was survived by her father Juan, mother Mary, sister Sarah, and brothers John, Jonathan, and Jaime. Her grandparents, numerous aunts, uncles, and cousins. She was laid to rest in San Fernando Cemetery Number 3. She was the glue that kept her family together. Her mother Mary said they were very, very close. She was her firstborn. She said Stephanie would pamper her a lot. Instead of me pampering her, she would pamper me a lot, Mary said. I could always go somewhere and tell the kids I was leaving, and she was the one that was always there behind me ready to go with me. Me and her would spend a lot of time together, and I really miss her. She misses just hanging out together or going to the mall. Her favorite thing was going in the room and saying, what are we going to eat? Stephanie was looking into doing mission work after graduation and her senior trip. It was very important to her. From everything described of her by her family, she was an amazing big sister and undoubtedly would have been an amazing mother to her baby. That's our story. 
I hope you take some time today to spend time with your kids or your mom and dad if you don't have any because you're their baby. It's the time we don't get back that we end up regretting. If you're a fan of the show, show your love with a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. Let me know your thoughts on Instagram at True Crime San Antonio as well. Love to hear from you. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native, hoping to see us through. Take care.